Welcome to another episode of the Mapscaping Podcast. My name is Daniel and this is a podcast for the geospatial community. My guest today is Nate Dugan, founder and CTO of Fly AI, which specializes in processing LiDAR data. And in this episode, we're going to cover the basics of LiDAR data and its applications, differences between LiDAR and photogrammetry, the processing chain of LiDAR data, challenges in classifying point clouds, and a bunch of other things. But before we get started, it's worth mentioning that I ask all companies that are featured on the podcast to cover the costs of producing their episodes. Some say no, and others, like Fly, say yes. And, and companies like Fly that agree to contribute are not just making their episode possible, they're making every episode possible. So thank you very much, Fly. I really appreciate your support. Hi, Nate. Welcome to the podcast. Today, we're going to be talking a lot about LiDAR. Uh, you have a company called Fly AI. So uh, I'll spell it for people, F-L-A-I dot A-I. And you do a ton of LiDAR processing and you do something a little bit different with, with LiDAR that, that I want to talk about later on. But before we get into all that, could you just please introduce yourself to the listeners, please? Maybe tell us about what, what your title is at Fly, how you got involved in, in LiDAR processing, and we'll, we'll go from there. Yeah, uh, thank you, Daniel, for uh, having me. Uh, I'm Nate, I'm uh, CTO and uh, founder at uh, Fly. Uh, we are a Slovenian-based startup company uh, that uh, spun out from Flycom Technologies, which is aerial data acquisition company that does a lot of uh, remote sensing uh, and uh, LiDAR scanning jobs in the area. And actually, uh, we started with uh, optimize, optimizing their internal processing uh, flows for uh, LiDAR processing. And uh, doing so, uh, we decided to basically spin out and create our own company uh, that focuses solely on uh, classification and processing of point clouds using uh, AI. Okay, so I've been talking about LiDAR up until now. Is that a mistake? You just said point clouds. Do you also process point clouds that might come from photogrammetry? Yeah, so, okay. So our technology basically is um, able to process any kind of uh, point cloud data from photogrammetry to uh, bathymetry uh, and also other sources of point clouds. Although we do focus mainly on LiDAR point clouds. So in a sense, they're quite similar, but there are some differences between uh, different uh, sources of uh, point clouds. Yes, I'm glad you mentioned that because that's a great lead in. I, I really want to start at the bottom and talk about LiDAR data. Like, what, what is it? This is going to seem a little bit sort of mundane for, for some of the listeners, but I think it's important to have a bit of a, like, have a foundation we can build the conversation on. So if I ask you the very simple question of like, what is LiDAR data? Perhaps we could start there. We could get a definition of it. You could explain a few things about it and then we'll move off and perhaps talk about some of these different sensors, some of these different sources of point clouds data and, and how you're processing it. Yeah, uh, that sounds cool. The main difference, let's say, between LiDAR and uh, photogrammetry is that uh, LiDAR is uh, an active sensor that is emitting its own source of uh, light and then capturing how many uh, photons uh, uh, are bouncing back to the, to the sensor. And uh, this has a few quite important implications in uh, and result of the point cloud. And those are that um, we do get the penetration through the canopy as the light that is emitted from the, from the sensor uh, has a footprint of a few centimeters depending on the sensor and the elevation from which um, the, the sensor is uh, capturing. 
And um, that footprint gets basically scattered or penetrates through through the tree canopy and bounces back also from, from the ground points. And uh, in doing so, basically, um, we are uh, getting points and data data points also inside uh, the tree canopy, which makes it really good sensor for uh, mapping of vegetation or terrain. And the other thing is, as it's the active sensor, we are always getting the intensity with each individual point, which is basically a measure how many photons have bounced back from uh, each individual echo. Just quickly, how is this different from, like you, you mentioned active sensor a couple of times there. Mm-hmm. So and I think a lot of the listeners will understand that photogrammetry taking an image is not an active sensor. It's, it's a passive sensor. Uh, could, could you just explain some of the differences about, some, about a point cloud that's derived from an active sensor as opposed to a passive sensor? The difference between active and passive sensor uh, in general is that uh, active sensors do have their own source of uh, energy, in this sense, uh, laser beam. And in photo- photogrammetry, when taking images, we are basically relying on other sources of uh, light. Mainly, uh, this is our sun. And this has implications that the light conditions are changing during the day, depending on how high the sun is up, uh, what is the cloud coverage, etc. And this then uh, also translates to the, uh, to the images. Uh, so that's one difference. So all those radiometric informations compared between photogrammetry and uh, LiDAR are in LiDAR always, let's say, the same as we know what is the source uh, and what is the power of the source. This is true for the same sensor with the same setting uh, and uh, captured at the same elevation. And the other thing, which is quite important, uh, uh, difference between LiDAR and photogrammetry is also that um, in photogrammetry, basically we are reconstructing 3D surfaces out of multiple images and therefore some thin objects or let's say wires in power line mapping can be hard to detect and uh, usually there are not of not a lot of points on uh, such uh, thin surfaces where on lidar datasets you are capturing wires quite well uh, in power line applications for example i heard you talk about footprints just before mm-hmm. should i be thinking of lidar data as a, a beam of light like a, a cone of light that it is being sent out from a sensor and imagining this this footprint becoming bigger the further I get away from the objects? Uh, yeah, that, that's correct, yeah. So although we imagine uh, lasers being quite narrow and uh, focused, in fact, there is still uh, some uh, divergence in each laser beam, resulting in larger and larger laser footprint farther away from sensors we go. So if uh, we are... Uh, looking at, let's say, scanning at 1,000 uh, meters above ground level, depending again a bit about which sensors we are using, but we can roughly get footprints of about 10 centimeters, 15 centimeters, something like that. And, and maybe you could say a little bit about some of the different wavelengths that, that are being used in, in LIDARs. So I have a very limited understanding of this, so any help you could give me would, would be great, but I know that there are different wavelengths. Um, perhaps you could Talk a little bit about what they are and, and the differences between them. So most commonly, there is a, a near-infrared wavelength that is being used for topographic mapping. But then there is also a, a lot of applications in uh, 
bathymetric LiDAR. So the LiDAR that uh, penetrates the sea surface or the water. And water, unfortunately, uh, absorbs uh, quite a lot of uh, red wavelengths. So the red uh, laser beams aren't suitable for bathymetric LiDARs. So therefore, they're usually green laser beams are used. In terms of these different wavelengths, so if I have a point cloud created by a you know a red laser and a green laser, I'm sure it's more nuanced than, than this, but if you just bear with me for a while, does that have any sort of knock-on effects when I think about processing that data later on, or is it all the same? It's all you know XYZ plus intensity? Yes, okay. In terms of XYZ, it uh, should look the same. Uh, where is the difference? It's the value of the intensity. So the value of intensity changes depending on few factors. One is the surface that it's hitting, as we are having different uh, uh, sources, different wavelengths. Those different wavelengths are absorbed differently by different surfaces. So therefore, we are getting uh, back different intensities from different objects. And if our, let's say, classification algorithm or other processing uh, uh, steps are heavily relying on intensity to do the classification, this can uh, have an effect that have to be taken into account. Okay, and, and just to clarify, intensity, we're still t- we're talking about the amount or the, the number of photons that are being reflected back into the sensor. Uh, yeah, that's correct. Yeah. So, so firstly, thank you very much for that. I think that's, that's a good sort of general overview of LiDAR. I realize we could go in a lot of different directions from here, but I, I want to sort of move on. Now that we understand a little bit more about LiDAR itself in terms of uh, how, how it works, I thought it'd be interesting to talk a little bit about the different kinds of sensors. So. Uh, a wee while ago on the podcast, we had someone from the, the JEDI project. So this is a, a LiDAR in space. In fact, it's attached to the bottom of the International Space Station. I've talked to people before that were doing exactly what you were talking about before. They were using bathymetric LiDAR. So from aerial platforms, I've talked to people that have been running LiDAR sensors from drones, handheld devices, and even phones. In terms of processing LiDAR data and, and doing the, the kinds of classifications that, that you do on LiDAR data, is there any difference? between these different platforms? Let's say if we go from the smaller scale to the larger scale, which is uh, the LiDAR uh, in space and the program uh, you mentioned, uh, JEDI. So the JEDI mission was set up to do vegetation or biomass mapping across the, across the globe. And as we were speaking before about um, the divergence of laser beam and laser footprint, uh, if you put a laser in uh, space, the, the footprint of uh, each individual laser beam would be in tens of meters. And that resulting in quite different point cloud, if even we can call that a point cloud. So therefore, that uh, data set from JEDI program wouldn't be directly, let's say, suitable for our processing algorithms. But then if we come down closer to the earth, to airborne, to handheld sensors, there is some differences between different platforms that are carrying the LiDAR sensor that are translated into data set, uh, the point cloud uh, itself. But in terms of processing, we are basically processing all those kinds of data sets. But what usually differs is what are the use cases uh, that different let's say, applications are, are, are focused for. So if you have uh, airborne uh, sensor, a large plane, then usually you are doing large nationwide topographic mapping and you're interested in different categories that if you are 
having handheld sensors moving through the forest or through the indoor environment and then trying to classify out uh, trees or furniture or whatever is it. So the main difference difference is then in the end use case. Okay, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. One, one thing we didn't mention was phones. Do you <laughs> realize they're probably not producing the kind of like the, the volumes of data that you're used to working with. But just out of curiosity, are, are you doing any sort of work for people that are wanting to pro- process LiDAR data coming from phones? Uh, actually, we did some experimental uh, work. So uh, more and more phones and tablets are having LiDAR sensors. Although those sensors are quite short-ranged and a bit noisy, they're mainly used for mapping or uh, 3D modeling of some small-scale objects. We did some classifications and filtering with those, but that's not the majority of work we do. So let's talk about some of the work that you do. Maybe you could start by describing what does the general sort of processing chain look like? So we, we capture this data and, and then what do you do with it? And the reason why I guess I asked this question is curiosity. And also I was talking to Howard Butler, mm-hmm. I'll put a link to that in the show notes later on. And, and he, was descri- he was saying 80% of all the, uh, of work with LiDAR data is, is filtering data. So my, my guess is there's a fair bit of filtering that happens. But apart from that, I know very little about the processing chain. But perhaps you could help me with that. Yeah, sure. Basically, the LiDAR projects actually start with the specification from a client that they want to capture a certain area with certain point density. And then what uh, data acquisition companies have to do is basically to plan out the flying mission either with plane or with uh, UAV or helicopter to meet the client's demand. And during the capturing, they're doing laser scanning, capturing position with the GNNS system, and also having inertial measurement unit uh, inside the airplane on the platform to measure all the offsets. And then when the data is captured, the first thing is to uh, calculate trajectories uh, of the plane. So basically, where the plane or the platform was moving, or more precisely, where the sensor in LiDAR sensor in the platform was at each individual point in time. After that, generation of point cloud from raw measurements of angles and time of flight of the beam is calculated, and uh, point cloud is georeferenced. Then the next step is that um, we usually cannot cover the whole area with single strip. So multiple strips are being performed. So you're basically flying up and down over the region. And because the calibration of the sensor cannot be perfect, there are always some misalignments. The two flying strips that are having a bit of overlap do not match perfectly one on the other. So therefore, the next step in the processing chain is usually matching of flight trips so they are uh, basically put together so that we do not have uh, little offsets between flying strips and then when we have georeference and match point cloud then uh, the fun part begins as far as i'm concerned (laughs) where we start with uh, filtering classification uh, extraction of uh, meaningful information out of the point cloud it's usually the point cloud is yeah just a lot of lot of uh, points uh, that are representing the surface uh, surface of the earth and uh, also as um, the laser is uh, going through the atmosphere there could be hitting some particles in the air resulting in noisy 
points uh, in the atmosphere. So in terms of the classification and filtering, we are basically removing or labeling all those points in some meaningful semantic categories, such as ground, vegetation, building, high noise points, low noise points. And then when we have each individual point in the point cloud label with the corresponding uh, category, we can, let's say, come to the last step of processing, uh, which is then generation of final products or vectorization or rasters. Here may be digital terrain models, uh, footprints of buildings, and similar. When you're talking about the uh, labeling each point in the point cloud, it might be a silly question, but are you, are you also grouping them? Like every point has a, a label. So if I was looking for cars, for example, so you would label every point as a car, but would you also group those points together in space and say like, all of these points belong to this object, which is a car? Yeah, so we are actually doing boating. So if in geospatial uh, community, usually we are using classification terminology for doing this labeling part. But if I'm not speaking more from, let's say, computer vision domain, those two problems that you're referring to are uh, named semantic segmentation and instance segmentation. So in semantic segmentation, yeah, we are associating semantic labels with each individual point in the point cloud. And in instance segmentation, we are saying all those points belong to an individual instance of a car, tree, or house for that matter. Also, if we are doing both those things uh, in parallel in the same processing chain, we also can call that panoptic uh, segmentation. And it actually turns out that if we are doing both things simultaneously uh, to, to decide what are the instances and what are the classifications, we can improve the quality of results of uh, both of those problems. You talked about computer vision before there. Is, is there any comparison to be made here? Well, you know, in, in a lot of different ways. And so in, in terms of labeling, so when I think about people labeling, uh, making a, a, a training data set for a c- computer vision processing chain, I, th- I think about people you know, drawing lines around, if we stick with the car, for example, this is a car, this is a car, showing the car from a lot of different angles and then using this as a training set to put into some perhaps a, a deep learning model. Is this the same thing that you're doing when you're classifying your, a 3D point cloud? Yeah, so actually... There has to be a lot of work put in into preparing training data sets. And uh, to prepare training data set is basically to manually go over the data set and label each individual point in the corresponding uh, category manually. Usually this is done in some semi-automatic fashion so that you have some automatic procedure that is generating the first version uh, of uh, classifications. And then, yeah, someone has to go manually over it and edit each individual point to be to uh, be correctly uh, classified. Although this can be uh, quite uh, quite difficult, as uh, one would want to have, let's say, one hundred percent accuracy in annotations, even for training datasets. But in fact, this is practically unobtainable or prohibitively expensive, and also it's quite difficult to decide. What is the correct label of points on the borders between different categories? So when the ground morphs into the bridge, for example, where is the, the cutoff uh, point? It's quite hard to distinguish. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a 
I hadn't thought of it like that, but yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. It's, it would be hard to find that discrete line, wouldn't it? Yeah. So again, staying with uh, computer vision just for a second mm-hmm. here. So I know that in, in Earth observation, in the geospatial world, it's not they, they can't just port a computer vision library that's been used you know, on, on images from cell phones you know, directly into the into geospatial world. Our, our data looks different. The frequency of it looks different. The amount of um, bands that we use in the layers that we that we have that you know it looks different it, it's not my understanding is anyway it's not just this one-to-one port but they can really build off this you know mature library of of code that's out there for computer vision is this the same when we think about processing 3d point clouds is the same is the, the same sort of mature library of of code of code out there that you can also use for you know, for lidar data for processing lidar data yeah so, so there are uh, some quite significant differences between how you go about processing uh, point cloud uh, data sets compared to uh, imagery data sets. Uh, and um, there, in, yeah, in fact, there is, has been quite a lot of more research focus uh, effort done in the imagery domain. So therefore the libraries in uh, that domain to the processing con- images it's uh, more mature compared to the LiDAR or point cloud uh, segment, uh, as I said, because of there is a quite larger domain, larger community doing work on it. Also, uh, there is a, a ton more uh, of training data sets that are available for doing research uh, on the imagery data sets. But uh, nonetheless, there is also quite significant and a lot of good work and research also done on the on the point clouds, and as I mentioned uh, uh, at the beginning uh, of uh, this answer, there is significant difference between processing lidar data compared to imagery data in terms of latest computer vision algorithms that are based on convolutional neural networks. And that being uh, is that um, in imagery data sets, uh, we have structured data, meaning that uh, data is organized in grid and we inherit the spatial relationship basically for free from data structure itself. In other words, neighboring pixels in image are also neighboring pixels or locations in spatial domain. But uh, point clouds are basically unordered sets of points, meaning that if we would look at the data uh, stored on uh, computer hard drive of the point cloud, each individual point is uh, uh, listed in, a, in an array. And um, if the uh, records uh, are one uh, behind the other, that doesn't uh, guarantee us the spatial relationship between those points. So therefore, we, can, we have to also uh, always uh, calculate the spatial relationships for, for each individual points. And this uh, results in those algorithms being prohibitively expensive or not prohibitively expensive, but quite more computational, uh, computationally expensive compared to uh, imagery data sets. When you put it like that, so I, firstly, I want to say I, I understand what you're saying, but you make it sound like there's, there's no um, spatial indexing happening in the, in the point cloud. Is this the case? My, my understanding is that you know, it would be stored in a, in a once you process it, you store it in a in a data format, and there will, there will be some sort of spatial indexing in that. So okay, actually, yeah, if you have a raw point cloud, there is not a guarantee that their spatial indexing has happened. 
Although when you were doing processing, you would usually calculate some, let's say like KD3, uh, which is basically a spatial index. And also um, the the new format for uh, storing LiDAR point clouds, which is cloud optimized uh, point cloud, actually also stores the spatial index uh, indexing uh, in uh, in the file itself. So to speed up the uh, the lookups and this uh, uh, can be quite helpful for visualizations as for processing uh, step. But uh, either way, you have to do it. Um, at some point uh, to calculate those indexes. You don't get them, let's say, for free as you get them in images. Yeah, no, it, it, honestly, it, it does make a lot of sense. I just wanted to clarify that for my own understanding. So you make it sound really hard. Okay, this is what, I, what I'm getting from this, is this. This is really hard. But when I look on your website, I can see that you've, you've obviously solved the problem for a lot of different use cases. Can you talk me through some of the like point cloud classifiers that, that you've developed? Yeah. So. We are offering, uh, let's say, three different pre-trained models, which means that we have uh, generated quite large training data sets and manually annotated and spent quite a lot of time doing so. And those pre-trained data sets are then being used for yeah, those use cases. And uh, uh, yeah, those pre-trained models are for geospatial domain, so we're calling geospatial flynet, and for mobile mapping domain, and also for forestry domain. Uh, and in scope of each of those domains, uh, each pre-trained model uh, can classify in variety of different categories uh, in aggregate. Uh, currently, I think we are doing like 44 different categories uh, and each client or use case demands different set or combination of those categories. So there are then when the real use cases uh, are happening, we are then fine-tuning or creating or selecting the right categories for this individual use case. And the second thing is uh, what we can also do as uh, we are basing all our algorithms on machine learning is that um, if client has their own training data set, uh, we can also modify or retrain our uh, pre-trained models to be suitable for that specific uh, use case that wasn't covered before beforehand by us. Oh, okay. Yeah, great. So this was one of my questions because I'm, I'm looking through the list here and let's say, let's use tree trunks a, as an example because right at the start of this episode, we're talking about how you know, there, there's different um, LiDAR wavelengths that, that, that are used. We talked about the, the different kinds of sensors that, that are being used and how that affects the, the point cloud. D- does this mean that I can just show up with, you know, I, I've scanned some, I, I've been through my forest and I've, I, I've been scanning trees and I can just give you any kind of data from any kind of LiDAR center, sensor and you'll be able to detect tree trunks for me? Yeah, so you can do a scanning of your forest from handheld device, you can do it from UAV, you, have, you can do it from airplane. The only thing you have to consider when doing the acquisition is that the tree, tree trunks are visible. So meaning, especially for airborne systems, you usually want to do that scans in a leaf off season. So therefore the larger percentage of the laser beams do penetrate through the canopy and bounce back from the tree trunks. And once you have the data set that uh, trunks are clearly visible, we have then a pre-trained model for forestry that will pick out each individual trunk, uh, do semantic segmentation on that. And after we have those points, we are doing uh, clustering or instance segmentation where we uh, group uh, 
all points from the same tree into individual clusters and then do vectorization of those to get uh, length of each individual tree trunk. And also if the point density is high enough that you can see the points uh, all over the trunk, we can also calculate the radius of, uh, of a tree trunk, uh, which can then be used to calculate uh, biomass or volume of the tree. And um, the export or end delivery here is basically uh, a shapefile with each individual tree and associated attributes such as uh, heights, uh, diameters, volumes, etc. Wow, <laughs> that's, that's really amazing. Mm. Again, this might be a, a stupid question. Is this over a limited geographic area? Is there a limit? Does it matter how much data I show up with? So, in a sense, we can process as much as you can capture. Obviously, there are some limitation in terms of how much uh, storage is available in, uh, let's say, public cloud providers. But I think we are not uh, hitting that limits uh, anytime soon as uh, yeah, those data centers are massive. Uh, so therefore, um, yeah, uh, we can scale up uh, the processing uh, and parallelize it so we can uh, process large data sets. We are uh, currently processing quite few of uh, nationwide LiDAR scans uh, in, uh, uh, in the region. So uh, You mentioned cloud-optimized point clouds before. If I had a large data set, would it, would it make sense to give a company like you j- just access to that, to that URL here and process it from there? Or do I have to send you a hard drive? Like how would I, I guess my question is, with, with these cloud-optimized formats, do you actually have to have access to the data? Does it have to sit on top of the compute or can you stream it into your processing chain? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. So actually, to uh, ingest data on our site, we are using different options from uh, uploading the data directly through the web application. But this uh, may be impractical for larger uh, data sets or projects. So in that case, uh, we can basically read or stream in data that is stored in some block storage uh, uh, in, let's say, cloud-optimized point cloud format. But uh, one consideration here uh, is that um, for large projects, the data sizes can get quite high. And if you are using cloud providers for uh, processing uh, of uh, your data sets, the ingestion or ingress and egress fees just for the moving data around can get quite high. So therefore, if you have already your data sets in particular cloud provider and particular data center region, it makes sense to move the compute to that region or center uh, so you don't have to move data in and out of the data center as this uh, increased costs of the processing and also the speed because the data has to be moved around. Yeah, that, that makes a lot, lot of sense. Now, okay, I realize we're, we're jumping around a little bit in the conversation, but c- can you tell me a little bit more about these different categories that you can identify that you can segment so uh, again i'm looking at list i'm seeing ground vegetation buildings uh low isolated noise high isolated noise water bridges power lines uh power towers you know there's, there's a lot of different things here a lot of it seems to be infrastructure which, which makes a lot of sense yeah can you give me an example of something that's really hard to to classify using lidar data mm. okay let me let me think uh, a bit about uh, that question so in a sense, uh, for um, 
let's say our AI classification algorithms, the rule of thumb is that uh, if a human annotator can see and distinguish individual object or category, then we can also train uh, our classifier to, to be able to classify it. So if, in other words, if you cannot manually or visually see the object, it's yeah, practically impossible also to, to create a training data set and then also to teach uh, an AI or, or classifier to, uh, to distinguish uh, the categories. And also there can be some categories that uh, can be classified differently on different contexts. So what I'm thinking about now is, uh, okay, we can have a parked lorry in a parking lot. And in that sense, we can classify it as a category other. But then if this lorry is moving on the road, then actually it's a moving vehicle. So the context where uh, individual category is can uh, change its definition. And this part can also be uh, quite tricky. And it uh, also has to have some additional context associated to it so that we know how to classify it correctly. Uh, yeah, th thank you very much for, for clarifying that. Uh, I just want to make sure I've understood something uh, that you said mm -hmm. before. So you, you, you said, you know, the rule of thumb is if a human can see it uh, and can you know, label it manually, then, then we can train a model to do it. I just want to be clear. We're talking about seeing it and labeling it in a 3D point cloud. Is that, that correct? Yeah, yeah, that, that's correct. Yeah. So one thing is that uh, if you cannot label it, you cannot create a training data set on uh, which to train the AI classifier. And the second thing is that if it's so hard to distinguish it, even human annotator cannot distinguish it, then there is not enough information in the data set that we could hope that classifier would be able to distinguish it. When, when you're classifying objects in point clouds, do you, do you ever use any other you know, data set to help you out? You know, if I was um, classifying uh, aerial imagery or satellite imagery, I might, I might use another data set. You know, a really basic example might just be using OpenStreetMap, putting a layer of OpenStreetMap over top of my aerial imagery and say, okay, this is, this is a pool because you know, in OpenStreetMap I can see there's a, there's a pool there, this mm -hmm. is a road, and using that to, to help inform the decision. Mm -hmm. do, do you do the same thing with uh, LiDAR data, with 3D point clouds? So what we are doing is that we are using open uh, street map in a sense to filter out uh, outliers. So for example, we can do classification of power lines and uh, maybe we have then some false positives that are quite far away from actual power line. And in that sense, we can help ourselves out with uh, open street map to filter false positives that are quite far away from actual objects in, uh, in the area. But uh, we do not like to rely too much uh, on those external, let's say, data sources, as in some parts of the world, they are not readily available or they are not uh, up to date, uh, or even if we are building new infrastructure. So a lot of time when uh, we are processing the data, the data has been captured because of some new development in that particular area. And there uh, isn't an up-to-date OpenStreetMap version because there is uh, just a construction site at uh, the time uh, being. Uh, so therefore, yeah, short answer here is that uh, we could make, and we do make use of OpenStreetMap, for example, sometimes, but we prefer to have a classifier that is independent of those uh, external data sources.
Yeah, I completely understand that. I've heard of people capturing imagery at the same time as well. So, you know, an extra data source that's captured at, at the same time as the LiDAR were, was captured. W- would this help in any way to, for when you think about classification, having that extra amount of data? Or just, is it just noise? Yeah, uh, actually, it would help uh, as you can also then, let's say, colorize point clouds. So basically to project all those uh, RGB values or even near infrared values if you have near infrared camera onto each individual point and then um, use that in the classifier algorithm. Uh, although we are not doing that too many times as we are building, let's say, one general pre trained model that uh, would work on most uh, data sources or, or on the most point clouds that we can uh, get hands on. And most point cloud data sets do not have uh, imagery associated with it. So therefore, in building our let's say, pre-trained models, we are opting out of all other additional information. Uh, but for some particular use case, it, it may help. Would it make sense to create training data based on synthetic data when we think about point clouds? Yeah, uh, definitely. Uh, it would uh, make sense, especially if you are trying to capture some, let's say, new category and you have uh, really good uh, CAD models for for that particular object, you could basically uh, populate uh, uh, a scene and uh, generate synthetic LiDAR point clouds. Also, there are quite few projects that, uh, projects that I'm aware that uh, are uh, out there. I think some are also open source to generate uh, uh, synthetic point cloud data sets that could be also used for uh, training. But one consideration here is that uh, although this can be quite good starting point to generate lots and lots of data, still um, you are not capturing everything that is happening in the real acquisition. So in the end, you will still need uh, some actual data sets, but it can speed up the development. So during the conversation, I've mentioned a few of these categories that that you're that you could label with your different models that you're using. Yeah, you know, we talked about vehicles. Uh, we've talked about buildings. Talked about water, ground, vegetation, those kinds of things. And, and my guess is when when I look at these different categories that you can classify, my, my guess is someone showed up with a use case and said, I, "I really want to know about to be able to capture power lines or power towers or." you know, vehicles, uh, moving vehicles, linear walls, that kind of thing. Who, who is using this? Like, who, who is using your services? Who are big users of, of LiDAR data and what are they doing with it? Yeah, so the, let's say, main use case from uh, where also we are coming uh, from is large uh, nationwide topographic uh, mapping, where usually mapping uh, agencies of the countries are ordering nationwide scans, LiDAR scans, mainly for generation of digital terrain models, where the main thing is to classify the ground points out of the, out of the point cloud. So this is one major use case, large nationwide topographic mapping. Uh, then uh, the second uh, quite, uh, quite extensive use case is uh, power line mapping. So in terms of power lines, uh, there are actually two, let's say, jobs that are being done. One is to do the inspection of the infrastructure itself, so to uh, map each uh, conductor and see if uh, that conductor is um, 
is in an okay state. And the second thing is the vegetation management, which uh, is getting more and more uh, important uh, as uh, there have been quite a lot of wildfires uh, caused uh, because of sparks jumping from, from the power line to the vegetation, which was uh, too close to the conductor. So therefore, uh, this is also one uh, application. And then uh, we also come down, okay, forestry, we already covered a bit. And then there is also the whole virtual reality and metaverse stuff where uh, you want to basically create digital twins of uh, built environment for various uh, VR applications. And there you also want to have semantically labeled uh, uh, point clouds to start off uh, to generate digital twins. I just want to be clear. So you're talking about power line mapping before, and you're saying one of you know, one of the goals of, of using LiDAR for this was to figure out you know how close is the vegetation and to manage the vegetation next to you know power lines, which, which makes a lot of sense. But if I heard you correctly, you said another goal is to actually look at the the shape of the conductor and see if it's damaged. Is that correct? Uh, yeah. So one of the application is actually that. If you know uh, under what load the power line is, what is the ambient uh, temperature, you can uh, calculate the sag of the of the conductor. Uh, and as uh, power line companies also know what the material uh, is used for that conductor and how old this is, they can basically model, let's say, the health st- status of the of the conductor. Wow. That, that, that's pretty amazing. So you mentioned a lot of things there. You said nationwide scanning. Um, so I've recently moved fr- from Denmark. Now I, I'm living in New Zealand. But this is true in Denmark. And I, I know it's also true in, in the US where they have the, I think it's called the 3DEP program. You know, they basically scan the whole country with LiDAR. And so digital twins, I've heard a lot of people talk about the need for accurate, you know, realistic models of the real world to create these digital twins. LiDAR makes a lot of sense there. And one thing we talked about right at the start of the episode was space, space-borne platforms. I know of at least one company that's going to be launching you know, a space-borne LiDAR soon, but do you see this? Are you processing any sort of space-borne LiDAR data sets? So as of time being, we are not uh, currently processing any space-borne LiDAR, but we would be more than uh, interested to, uh, to tackle uh, that uh, problem or challenge. As I mentioned a bit uh, earlier, there is a bit difference or some considerations or limitations in spaceborne LiDAR in terms of the footprint uh, and what is then the, the uh, resulting point cloud because of large footprints. But um, what would be really great uh, in that, uh, let's say, LiDAR community is to get a systematic source uh, of, uh, of LiDAR point clouds. So, for example, what I'm meaning with that is that currently different countries are planning their uh, data capturing uh, programs, and those are, let's say, every uh, and years. But uh, what is really great in, let's say, the, uh, Earth observation community is that you are basically getting, let's say, Sentinel 2 data every five days or whatever is the uh, uh, revisit uh, time, and uh, you're getting. Uh, systematic source of data continuously and in lighter world this is not yet the case but it would be really great to have a systematic uh, data source and then also to have time series that, uh, of lighter point clouds that could be analyzed and also uh, that would open 
a whole new uh, potential for new use cases uh, that can be built upon time series of uh, point cloud data sets. That is, yeah, that, that's that's a really interesting uh, interesting way of looking at it. I mean, I've never thought of it like that for LIDAR, but I know that the Landsat and the Sentinel programs have had a you know, humongous impact on Earth observation. And a lot of it is because it's been the systematic source. You you knew where, you know, it's... If, the orbit is well known, the sensor is well known, it captures on a regular basis, and it's open and, and freely available. Yeah, and, and it's meant that people have been able to use it basically as a platform to build other applications and products. And you're right, I, we don't have that for later. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's uh, quite a, let's say, large opportunity for someone to fill that gap to, to start generating uh, systematic LiDAR and uh, we really keen to see the development uh, in this area as uh, there is more and more LiDAR data captured uh, every day, but with uh, uh, having a systematic source, this would be uh, quite awesome. Yeah, yeah, it really would be. So now we're on to that section of the podcast where we're looking out towards the future. When you think about the future of LiDAR, I think you probably just mentioned one of the things that you would like to see, the systematic uh, capture of LiDAR, perhaps preferably from a space-borne platform but maybe from another platform who knows so that's one thing but when you think beyond that do you think of just lidar capture as being just more data at a higher resolution and in a higher frequency or, or do you think do you see something else happening on the horizon so i think the the two larger strands that are uh, now playing out in the uh, main of lidar the first uh, one is that the sensors are getting uh, more and more affordable resulting in more data being captured, uh, which is uh, really great because a few years ago it was quite, quite expensive to do uh, data acquisition and therefore only large uh, acquisition missions were carried out. But now uh, with affordable sensors that and also lightweight sensors that could be mounted on uh, UAVs, almost everyone with uh, mapping uh, capabilities can afford to have a new AV equipped with a LiDAR sensor, uh, which is uh, uh, fantastic. And also, uh, as we mentioned, there are more and more handheld devices that are also capturing the LiDAR data sets. Uh, so the first thing is yeah, that data acquisition is getting cheaper because of more affordable sensors and more lightweight sensors. And the second thing is the automatization of uh, point cloud uh, processing, so meaning AI, machine learning tools that are able to uh, automatically classify large volumes of data. And those two drivers are basically driving the let's say, prices or affordability of point cloud projects die- down uh, and uh, in that making space for new uh, opportunities and use cases. Yeah, yeah. I would, I would, you're the expert, but I, in my uninformed opinion, I would definitely agree with that. It's going to be kind. Of, it's going to be pretty interesting to see where it ends up. And I can see too this this push for these realistic versions of the world. When we think about AR, VR, digital twins, I have a hard time imagining doing it without lidar. But you know, I, I'm not an expert in this field. This is just what what I what I see from from where I'm sitting. I think probably now is a really good time to, to round off the conversation and I want to do that by saying thank you very much. This has been great. I've learned a lot about LiDAR. If people want to reach out to you and continue this conversation or, or learn about what you're doing at, at Fly, 
where, where can they go? Can I can I put put a link to your website in the show notes? Is it okay if I link to your uh, LinkedIn profile? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, you can, they can go to our webpage, which is flai.ai. They can also find me or reach out at uh, LinkedIn. I'm a bit less active on Twitter, but also there. Great. Thank you again for your time. Really, really appreciate it. Yeah, Daniel, thank you for having me. And it was uh, great uh, discussing the LiDAR with you. I really hope you enjoyed that episode with Nate Dugan, founder and CTO of Fly.ai. If you want to catch up with Nate or Fly, so there'll be links in the show notes to where you can best reach out. I also put links in the show notes to a few other episodes that you might find interesting. We've covered topics similar to this one before and you will find those in the show notes of this episode today. So thanks very much for listening all the way to the end. It's much appreciated. I'll see you again soon. Until then, bye.